Amen. Good morning, church. Take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to continue in our series, The Prodigal. And while you're turning there, um, a couple of things that I want to mention. Uh, First of all, next, you know, this Sunday is great. I'm glad you're here. This is awesome. But next Sunday, you don't want to miss next Sunday. There's just going to be all kind of power-packed good stuff that's going to be happening in our worship. Uh, The first thing is, is that we are actually going to have a church-wide vote in the service next Sunday. I believe it will be at the end of the service. Um, I should say it's at the beginning so y'all get here. I'm not, I'm just saying. But uh, I don't, I don't know exactly when in the service. I can't remember. I know it's at the end of the Buda Castle. It has to be the end here. But we'll have a vote on the property that was all presented at the family meeting the other night. Hopefully you got the email and you got to see the details, the presentation of the trustees and all of that. But we will vote officially as a church in here next Sunday. But also next Sunday, Aaron Lavarco, our tour guide that that I won't go to Israel without him being my tour guide. He's amazing. Um, and so I always ask him, when are you available? Because that's when I'll go. Um, and uh, he's going to be here, and he's going to be preaching on Psalm 90 next Sunday. Now, he is a, um, a born Jew in New Zealand, uh, came, became a Christian, and then moved to Israel and been doing tours for decades there, a Messianic Jew with a New Zealand accent, which is, like, awesome because you, get to, you just want to hear him talk, you know. Uh, so anyway, he's going to be here and preaching Psalm 90 next week, but he's also in the afternoon going to be leading two Seder meals for us, uh, basically a Messianic Jew perspective of the Passover meal, and if you've never done that, it's an awesome experience, um, one at 2 o'clock at Dripping Springs campus, and then one at 4.30 right here on this campus, and we'll be over in the gym, and so if you want, would like to go through that, it's a meal, it's a dinner, and it's all reflecting on God and uh, what he's done uh, for us, and so if you'd like to join that, he's going to be leading that, and, and it's, a, it's a real blessing. Also, uh, for Israel trip, I'm getting lots of uh, questions on that, so I'm going to have one more interest meeting, and that'll be on the 23rd upstairs. If you'd like to go, we'd love to, if you've got questions or anything, love to, you can email me or you can come to that meeting, and I'd love to help you in any way that I can, okay? All right, we're in our second week of the series on the prodigal. And uh, the, the, one, the cool thing about this particular story that Jesus shared and how it applies to the context he's talking about and what it means for us today, um, there's just so much that you could say. And um, honestly, uh, you, you might be a little disappointed with some things that I leave out. I just don't have time to get them in. Because honestly, in sermon prep, you would be shocked to know that there are tons of clips that I leave on the floor that don't make it into the movie. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and, 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 you know, you, you have mixed emotions about that because you'd really like to know what's in the clip, but also you want to go to lunch on time. So you're glad I left them on the floor, right? But here's what I do for that. I give you books and references that say, hey, if you go check this out. If you're interested in getting all the details and really getting a blessing for your soul, there's a whole lot of things that could be said um, that I have left out. But you could get these books, and they'll help you. Maybe make it a Lent reading or something like that. If, the, if uh, something in this prodigal has really stirred you, I encourage you to go chase these down, okay? The first one, and probably the best, Tim Keller on the prodigal God, probably the most popular. I read this 15 years ago whenever it came out, and really well done. Uh, everything Tim Keller does is really well done, but prodigal God is exceptional. You want to check that out. You can take pictures of it. I, got, I think they're putting up pictures here if you want. Uh, the second one is The Return of the Prodigal by Henry Nouwen. Um, I don't know if you know who Henry Nouwen is, but 
uh, just to give you a little bit of a reference, he, he, he and Mr. Rogers were really close friends. Uh, Mr. Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister. And uh, anyway, there were two very strong believers, and they encouraged each other all the time. But Henry Nowen, man, a prolific writer, brilliant mind, and he also wrote uh, a book on this, and I encourage you to read that as well. This is uh, also coming from Pastor Chuck. Pastor Chuck loved this book, and he wanted to insert that. So Accidental Pharisee is the other one by Larry Osborne and the Pharisaical Spirit and how this pulls into the life of a believer I encourage all of uh, these books, if you want to chase those down and get all the details, those are, those are really great to go. Great reads there, okay? A recap from last week. The younger son asked for his inheritance, incredibly insulting to his father. He takes it. His father actually obliges when he should have stoned the kid and gives him, liquidates his property, gives it to him, and he takes that property and he takes it to Vegas and just blows it on his fields. Um, and just prostitutes and for drugs. And you can imagine um, that it didn't last long, we're assuming, but maybe it lasts for a time. And, and he, he blows it. But then the famine comes along. He runs out of money. The hard times hit. Uh, and at the very bottom of the bottom of the bottom, okay, for, for this story, he comes to his senses and he says, you know, hey, I, you know what, I may just go to my dad. Um, his his Worse servants are better off than I am right now, so I'll go back to dad. And um, so he decides to go back to his father. And if, if you're listening to the story in the days of Jesus and you're hearing Jesus say this story, what you would anticipate in this moment is as he goes to his father is that he gets what he deserves. That, um, yep, I knew the cosmos would bring you back to me. And you'd pay for what you've done here. And you'd realize how bad it is. And you'd get a, a slam door or a, yeah, now you finally realize what you've done. And you, let, you made your bed and a lie in it, you know, kind of thing. And uh, this sort of thing would be, would be done. Uh, and this is what you anticipate. Of, yeah, sure, real convenient and hard times. You want to come back to dad now, right? After you've done all that you've done, now you really want to come back. This is what they would have been feeling. And this is exactly what Jesus would want us to begin to feel if we're listening to the story. That the father does what is totally unexpected and we feel in our hearts is almost wrong. That the father runs to him and humiliates himself by running, first of all. Uh, not to that guy, you know. Uh, but then runs and kisses him and embraces him and reinstates him as a son. And puts, him, puts a robe on him and actually doesn't make him a servant. Actually brings him back in the house and gives him his former position. And you're like, did you, what, did you, were you not even present when he did all this to you? And you're just lavishing all this good stuff on this son. And this is the point that Jesus is making. Um, God receives repentant sinners with lavish grace. Amen. And we celebrate that. And he'll receive you. And it doesn't matter what you've done or who you've hurt or the damage you've done in your life. Um, those things are horrible. Those things are sinful. Those things are corrupt. Those things are bad. Yes, you were selfish. God will receive you and he'll wash you. But that's the message from last week. But that isn't the end of the story. And honestly, that's not why the story was given. Although it's, it's a true depiction of God's lavish grace. There's more to this. There's more that Jesus was actually trying to get after here. And in today's context, what we have as we pick up in verse 25, 
is the father's throwing this celebration for his son, which feels wrong. It feels too lavish. It feels like he's out of touch with reality. He doesn't know how relationships work. He should have put a boundary here or whatever. This rotten younger son is back, and he's doing this weird party for him, and everybody's kind of weird wondering what's going on here. That's the context. And now we pick up in verse 25, so read along with me here. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him? He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. But this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you for your word and thank you for how man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Real living is listening. And real living is listening to you. And Lord, as we listen, as we meditate, as we ponder and we speak these things, we pray that our souls will be full of you, your personal presence from your word. And, Lord, that we would be the kind of people you want us to be for your glory. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus just leaves the end like that. He doesn't ask a question like he does in other cases. He just leaves it. And the question I, I have is why did he just leave it? Is it? And the answer probably is, so now what are you going to do? It's usually why it ends like that. Anytime the Bible ends on a minor note, it's like it turns to you. And it says, so now who are you going to be? Who are you going to do? What are you going to do? So that's really the end conclusion here from this story is who are you and what are you going to be? Who are you going to be in light of these things? And so we have this older son, the firstborn son. He's the majority heir of the inheritance of the father. He hears of the celebration that God has killed, that, that the father has killed the fatted calf, slaughtered it for the feast because this Younger brother's coming. He's feeling like, Dad, this, this man ripped our life apart. And um, have you forgotten what he did to us? Like, and it says the older brother was angry. And why was, he, why was he angry? It's just not fair. It's not fair. And at least we could at least identify with a little bit of what he's feeling. If this happened to you, you might not be so lavish about God's grace. If, if the brother did this to you, you might be a little bit like he needs to pay. You know, and you need to feel a little bit of that. And this brother says, how can we treat him that way after he's treated us so badly? His argument is, I stayed. I served you. I obeyed. And not once have you slaughtered the fattened calf for me. I can connect with that, can't you? Like, hey, how about a little, like, I obeyed the rules, right? I mean, you can feel this, right? The father stayed the course. It's fitting. 
to be glad and to celebrate lavishly. He was lost and now he's found. So the question of the whole parable is this. Who is Jesus referring to when he includes the two brothers in the story? Because it is a story. It's a parable. It's something made up. Jesus just made up this story. It's not, it's not that it, it didn't really happen. Um, this is just a story. And the story illustrates something that's in reality around him. And so we want to find out where this story applies to the people uh, around him. Who is the prodigal? Who's the younger brother? And who's the older brother? And what does he mean? Where, what, what is happening and how can we unpack this? Well, the context helps us with this point. If you look in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, a context is set up for this. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so we have religious leaders thinking negatively of something that Jesus is doing that isn't accepted socially. He is really breaking the social rules of the day by doing something that they are shaming him for. And that is, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now let, let me unpack this. You guys have had your coffee? Y'all good? And you're awake? And uh, y'all are going to be with me the next at least 15 minutes, right? Because I'm going to get a little bit cerebral with you. So I'm just warning you so that you'll hang on with me. Are y'all with me? All right. Let me break down a couple things to you and unpack this. First, the term sinner in those days. In our days, the term sinner is really stretched out. And uh, the, the, the term sinner in those days meant a little bit, a little bit tighter uh, definition. We, uh, you can think of sinner in those days as you had the upper class honorable people, okay, and then you had the lower class, and on the bottom side of the lower class was a class of people who had a reputation, and everybody knew who they were, and everybody knew what they did, and they had a reputation of doing bad things and being bad people, and they were thrown into this category socially called sinners, okay? They were the sinners, okay? This culture did not think of itself using that term as all of us are that, right? Uh, you and I have that, but they didn't think like that. They thought differently. It was a social class system. You had a shame and honor culture, and the people in the culture that were good and honorable, uh, the people that were honored were the people that were good, and they were good because they were selfless, and they showed that. They were good because they were generous. They were good because they did the right things. They were good because they honored God in their life. And they were good because they had this reputation of being honorable and good. And those people are the ones you want to esteem in a society. So you and I, if we're the architect of a society, and we ask, what kind of society do we want to be? Well, we want to be a society where people do good for each other, are selfless, and when they have these values. And we want to honor that society. And so in our society, the way that we build that, is that we honor the people that do good, right? And we want to honor that so that everybody in our society will want that because they get honor when, they get, when they're good, all right? And how, what we can't have is honor going to people who do bad things because if we honor people who are doing bad things, what kind of society would that create? That would create a society that makes people think you can do whatever you want to do and we'll honor you. And well, we can't have that. So it's shame and honor culture. We must shame people who do bad things, honor people who do good things, and that will create a society that we're wanting to create. Are you all following me? Jesus is about to introduce a whole different society structure. And this is the problem. 
He's cutting against his own society, and he's building a different society. And that's the problem that he is running into. But what we have here is this term called sinner is these bad people that Jesus is allowing himself to be associated with. In other words, Jesus is a rabbi. He's going around teaching, and everybody's honoring him because he's in an honorable position, and he's doing good, and he's doing all these things. And yet he's hanging out with people that we should shame. And so he needs to be shamed for hanging out people who should be shamed. And that would create the society that we're looking for. And yet Jesus is willingly allowing himself to be considered one of them. He's, considered, he's letting society look at him and for him to be tagged in the bottom class with all the bottom class people in the centers. He's allowing himself socially to be tied to them. What kind of rabbi who wants to be honored and, and encourage honoring would allow himself to be associated with people of that class? He's going to destroy our society. Are you all getting this? Okay. He's allowing himself to be associated with tax collectors. Now, I know you're probably familiar with tax collectors. They are Jews. Roman occupation comes and takes over the Jews. Well, there are Jewish people that say, hey, you know what? Rome... They're going to hire me to get taxes from my own people to pay them. And I'll do that. And all the Jews look at the person and go, you're going to work for the Roman government to tax me? Thanks. And if that's not bad enough, they say, not only am I going to get a tax for the Roman government, the Roman government tells me I can charge you anything I want for the fee of doing that. So you know what I'm going to do? You owe me big. Not only am I going to tax you, now I'm going to get rich off you. And I'm one of you. These people are traitors. And all of them are stuck in that class of sinner and socially they're, they're always avoided and they're always left out. And they're shamed. And they're shamed for their treachery. They're shamed of their money hungry, traitors, and they are evil people. And they, need to, they are sinners, and they need to be shamed in our culture. And that's what they were. And it says that Jesus was allowing himself to be associated and one of them. This is the problem that he is hurting. He's hurting here. Let me give you a little caveat to set all of this up. When John the Baptist came on the scene, walk with me through John the Baptist's ministry. He's at the Jordan River. Y'all see him? And he's preaching repentance for the kingdom of God has come. Everyone needs to repent and everyone needs to be baptized. Now, baptism was reserved for Gentiles who wanted to come into the covenant of Jews. Jews didn't get baptized. Jews got circumcised because that was their sign of belonging to God. Gentiles were baptized. John comes along and he's baptizing everybody. Be washed of your sins. Repent and be washed in baptism. He preached the baptism of repentance. You recognize your sin, you own them, you do what the younger son did, and you say you're sorry, and you ask for forgiveness, and you come and you are washed. This is what John was doing. He's baptizing at the Jordan, and the Bible says people from Jerusalem, which is not far away, and all of Judea, and the whole country, people were going down there flocking to listen to John preach on the edge of the Jordan, to preach in that area, and to have him wash them of their sins symbolically through baptism and they were repenting all over the place but who was it that was going to John and repenting of their sins and being baptized 
symbolizing having their sins washed away. Who were actually being baptized? Well, the Bible actually tells us. In Luke chapter 3, 12 to 14, it says this. <laughs> Notice the even in here, all right? Even tax collectors. It's like, man, even the dredges of the bottom of the bottom came out to hear John. The worst of sinners showed up to hear John. And it says, even tax collectors came to be baptized. And they would wash of their sins and they repented. And then they would ask John, John, I'm a tax collector. So do I stop tax collecting? Do I do something else? What do I do now that I am repentant and I want to live for God now? And John says, and they said, teacher, they asked, what should we do? And in verse 13, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. In other words, John's saying, no, go back to tax collecting. That's fine. But don't charge absorbent amounts. Don't try to get wealthy off of people. Charge what's fair. Now, isn't that interesting? I'm a tax collector. I've been ripping people off forever, and I get forgiven. And John says, no, no, go back to tax collecting. That's not a sin. But don't be overcharging people and getting wealthy off people. And, and guess what? Tax collectors would go back to their jobs, sit at their booth, take taxes, and they would try to charge only what's fair. Right? Some of them would go back and reimburse everybody that they've wronged because they were repentant. But I believe this is what Matthew was doing at his tax collecting booth. When Jesus approached him and said, come, follow me. Matthew had been baptized by John. He's a repentant tax collector. And he's back there trying to do it the right way. And Jesus says, come with me. Okay. But tax collectors weren't the only sinners coming to John to repent. Now, they were considered the dredges, right? But there's another group that was as well. In another instance, Jesus said there was another group coming. In Matthew 21, 31b to 32... It says this, that Jesus said to them, the religious leaders, he said this, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, now remember, tax collectors and prostitutes is a term representing the whole category of sinners over here, okay? And he says, he says the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. He's telling religious leaders that the lowest of the low have come into the kingdom and you're still out. The lowest of the low, the worst rotten people are in the kingdom and you aren't. The lowest of the low are accepted by God and approved of God and you aren't. This is what he's telling them to their face. Well, who determines who's in and who's out? Jesus does. What measurement does he use to say who's in and who's out? Because this measurement looks really whack. Honorable people who did good, you're saying they aren't in. Bad people who did horrible things and hurt lots of families and did all kind of bad stuff, you're telling them they're in and they're approved of God. Make that make sense. Well, this is what Jesus does. For John, according to Jesus, who's in and who's out is all about this thing with John. John is the one that determines who's in and who's out. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, religious leaders, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. What's he saying? The tax collectors and sinners came to John. They heard they needed to repent. And guess what they did? You better believe it. I'm getting washed. I've been stained with this sinner title my whole life. 
I'm ready. I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't deserve anything. And if he's offering me a free gift, I'm coming. What did the religious leaders do? The religious leaders said, baptize, repent. That's for other people. That's for them. Good for them. Not for me. This is the, the whole thing. So who's the younger brother in the story? Y'all can dialogue with me for a second. Who's the younger brother? Tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. Those are the people. They have ripped lives to shreds, but they came and they repented. And guess what? The father throws a celebration for them and receives them 100%. It almost feels wrong, the kind of grace that comes from God. And it is wrong unless there's an atonement that paid for that kind of grace, and there was in the person of Jesus. That's where we get it. It's grace. It's grace. So that's the younger brother in the story. They came to John. They heard, and they were baptized. Let me ask you a question. So they came, and they were baptized, and they were washed. And Jesus comes to John. And what does John say about Jesus? Do you all remember? I feel like I'm teaching a class, but just walk with me. John says of Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is like, okay, I'm like a temporary symbol of the remission of sins, washing of sins. He actually takes them away. He's the one who's going to take them away so you can be washed. He's the ultimate atonement. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, what are these people, who are these people on the shoreline following John and listening to John? All the sinners and religious leaders and anybody else that wants to come, right? But the sinners who've been baptized and repent are listening to John. What do they do? They're looking at John to tell me how to live. And John says, look, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what they do is they go, okay, I guess I'm following you now. And they're following Jesus. So who's hanging out with Jesus? Baptized, repentant, tax collectors and sinners. What are they bringing with them? A bad reputation. A bad social reputation. And what will Jesus do? Well, Jesus will hang with them and he will become known as one of them with them. They were repentant. They are the younger brother. Jesus throws a celebration for them and he has no problem being associated with them. Zero. Because all he cares about is what God thinks about them and whether they've repented. Jesus is creating a whole new society structure called grace. It's really the church. So who's the older brother? The religious leaders. Those people who have problems with Jesus associating himself with people of the lower class and the, and the, and the bad people of society. And he's stirring things up and he's making them honorable now by being with them. He's making them legitimate, legitimately pe people that should be legitimized in our society because he's hanging with them as an honorable teacher. And he shouldn't be hanging with them because he's, he's honoring people who should be shamed. Because that's never going to give the culture. And here he is doing all of that. And that's causing the problems. And what will Jesus do in the midst of that? He'll say, give me the reputation. I'll be with them. They have repented. They are washed. And I'll celebrate it. 
Let me unpack a few things about the self-righteous prodigal, we could call him the older brother. First, believer, the self-righteous prodigal be- believes their standing with God is based on their performance. I've been good. I have obeyed you. I served you. And it's interesting that they, they feel like the Father's approval should be based on what they've done in their performance. And they have this view of God. Tim Keller makes the argument that the older brother was simply after the father things as well. That the younger son, all he wanted was the inheritance. And he says, forget you, father. And then the older son, you know what? All he wanted was the inheritance too. He just, he just chose that he was going to be good and honorable to his father to get it. They both wanted the same thing. They're both lost. Both lost. The father goes out to the prodigal and receives him. And the father goes out to the older brother in his anger as well. The brother, he goes out to invite them into the celebration. Both are invited into the celebration. Both are lost. Both are invited. One comes in. One stays out. So they stay out because they believe their standing with God is more honorable and more approved than another person's. Next, they have login eye disease. Um, let me ask you this question, all right? A little bit of a trick question, but if you had to think about in the, in the world, you know, like who is the worst sinner you can think of in the world right now? For them, it would have been probably a tax collector or a prostitute. Who is the worst sinner you can think of in the world right now? And to Jesus, let's all see what the proper answer would be. Feel that? I hope you felt that because I felt it. But some of you may, may not have gone to that first. And, and I mean me by key. Yeah, it's me. Yeah. Now, all of us should say me. This is the point. That if you didn't even think of yourself, there's a, there's a remnant of the older son syndrome in you. And this is a problem. And that feels a little convicting. But if you have a problem getting there, that is the fight of your soul. And you have a problem staying there, that is the fight of your soul. The problem with the older brother, he's been good. And his goodness causes him to compare themselves to others. And he feels pretty good about himself, you know. When he thinks about himself in, in, in comparison to other people, Jesus gave this illustration. Two men came to pray. One was a tax collector and the other one was a religious leader. And the religious leader stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. There's that word even again. Even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I get a tenth of, and I give a tenth of all I get. Lord, look, thank you that I'm not like other people. And then he says, but the tax collector stood at a distance, wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then he says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified. In other words, approved of. Which man got approval? And Jesus clearly says it's, it's him. You know, it feels good to compare yourself to others who are really blowing it in life. You know, it feels good. 
That's why you watch Jerry Springer. <laughs> to feel better about yourself. Right? None of you would look at those people and go, that's me. That's me. Because you're an older brother. You think more highly of yourself than you ought. Feels good to gossip about people who are bad or doing something bad, especially if they hurt you. Because if you make them look bad, you feel better because you look better. All of this is the older brother. All of this is the older brother. None of this is of grace. And all the while, we're the ones getting further from God in that attitude. Both sons are lost. You remember Jesus teaching on logs and specks? He said, uh, you know, how can you look down on your brother who's got a speck in his eye, a little piece of sawdust in his eye, and all the while you've got a big plank, two by 12, coming hanging out of your eye, right? And obviously that's, uh, that's hyperbole and, and going a little crazy to help make a point. What he's basically saying is you're looking down on the things your, brother did, your, your brother's doing, you're looking down on it, and all of a sudden by you looking down, self-righteousness goes up in you, and all of a sudden you don't know you've got a worse problem. You're proud. You don't know how sinful you are engaging in this practice. In fact, you become worse by engaging in it. Look at this quote. I want us to see it. We must always be a people that view our own sins as planks and the sins of others as specks. That is the fight of your life. Those people who believe a certain theology and look at them over there. And all of a sudden you're like, you're right. You are doctrinally right, but something is sneaking into your heart, and you had better be careful. You can be right and not right. We must always be a people who view our own sins as planks and the sins of others as specks. That's the fight of our life. Then the older prodigal doesn't feel a need to repent when John preached repentance they didn't need to repent because they are honorable in society and they do good why would they need to repent God should look on them with favor right the self-righteous prodigal needs to compare themselves not with others and see themselves as honorable they need to compare themselves with Jesus and see how far they fall short of that they need to hear God's requirements, not people's requirements. They need to ask themselves a couple of things. Here it is. Have I always loved God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength at every point in my thoughts, words, and actions at all times? Have I always loved God with all my being? If you have failed in even a hint of one area, you are altogether corrupt in God's eyes. If you have failed in this at any point, have I ever put anything in my life is more important than God? Then to God, I am an idolater totally. Have I always honored my father and mother in every way, thoughts, words, and actions? Not because they deserve it, but because God commands it. Have I ever hated someone in my heart? 
If so, Jesus says, I'm guilty of murder before God. Have I ever lusted in my heart sexually? If so, Jesus says, I'm guilty of adultery before God. I am an adulterer. Have you, I had sex outside of marriage or fantasized about it. Then I am guilty of adultery if I'm married, guilty of fornication if I'm single. This is how God sees it. Have I ever stolen anything in my life of any value before God? If so, I am a total thief. Have I ever told a white lie, half-truth, exaggeration? If so, before God, I am a liar. Have I ever desired something that someone else has? If so, I am guilty of being covetous completely before God. And if at any one of these points, any one of these points that I've broken it, and I haven't broken others, the problem is you break in one area, you shatter all of its perfections, and you are altogether fallen, corrupt, and sinful in the eyes of God. 100%. If we're truly honest with ourselves, we'll admit we haven't just broken them, we've shattered them to pieces. And I don't care who you are, the Bible says, no matter how good you think you've been, you are a dirty, rotten sinner in the eyes of God, myself included. And if you're trying to cover that up with a life of obedience to God, thinking God will accept you on the grounds of trying to be good, after you have all of that in your heart, you are terribly wrong. And you say, well, maybe God will just accept me. He knows my heart. The problem is he knows your heart. That's the problem. And you deserve eternal condemnation. I deserve eternal condemnation. It is right for me to receive that. It is just for me to receive that for the things I've engaged in. You must feel that. You must feel it. The problem we have is our hearts are deceitfully corrupt and sinful. The older brother's syndrome is one that refuses to see that or can't see it. He is deceived by his own goodness. And he can't see his own corruption. And that's the problem. Because if you can't see your own corruption, then you can't repent. And if you can't repent, you cannot be saved. And refusing to repent means remaining outside the kingdom. You see, the, the, the thing, the pendulum, the, 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 the switch that determines who's out and who's in is not sin. We've all sinned grievously against God. The pendulum of who's out and who's in is repentance. And the pendulum of repentance is pride. We must always be careful of the spirit of the older brother. Always be careful of it. You know, we're talking about people who are lost and are saved. Okay, so we're talking about the context of a person repenting of their sin, trusting God. Maybe most of you in this room, if not all, have had a moment in your life where you were convicted of your sins, you knew you weren't in Christ, you needed forgiveness, and you trusted him, you repented, and you were forgiven totally. You were given sonship, and all of that is a gift completely. And that's why you're here today, to worship him and give him praise, the way we sang earlier. And that, hallelujah, this is the society Jesus is creating. And it was counter to the one he was in. And this is what he's after in us. But we always have to be careful 
It is possible for you to be a Christian, having experienced the grace of God completely in your life, and something happened moving forward, and you have just breathed in the older brother syndrome, and you didn't know you did it. It just happened to you. I'll give you one quick example, and we're done. We're going to lunch. Y'all with me? The Corinthian church. Paul says there were some in the Corinthian church who got sideways with each other, and they are angry at each other. And they let their anger drive them so much, they went up through the proper channels, it got out of the church, and they took it to a pagan Roman court to settle it in a pagan Roman court. And Paul gets ear of this and went, Whoa! Christians never sue Christians. Clear. That is sin. Wrongs need to be righted. Let's handle it in the church. Don't go to a pagan court and trash the name of Jesus with two of you who can't find a way to work something out together within the church. You are bashing the name of Jesus right in front of all the pagan world. This is what he said. Do you know what he said drove it? You know why he said that they were doing it? Look what he said. Last part of 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 11, he says this. He says, but you yourselves, you, wrong, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. You're taking them into court. You, don't you know that the unrighteous will, inherit, unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says to them this. Here's why you're suing each other in court. As such were some of you. And all of a sudden, you've got rights. As if God brought you in here because you're something. He said, and such were some of you. You are dirty, rotten, filthy sinners. And you came in here and you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And what is he saying there? He's saying what has happened to you is in a conflict. You have adopted the spirit of the older brother, and you didn't know it. It came right back into your hearts. You had a day where you were washed and you were sanctified, and you were, you were all grace and all mercy. And I can forgive anybody because all the things that I've been forgiven. And then, you know, you just truck along in that. You truck along in that. And then someone hurt you, and they did something really wrong to you. And you go, that's wrong. And all of a sudden, here we go. Here comes this older brother. They're theologically wrong. He hurt me. They did this. They did that. Here he comes. And he has taken over you. And now you're in the condition you're in because you have forgotten the grace of God that has been poured out on you lavishly. And love didn't fill your heart anymore. Justice fills your heart. The community of faith that Jesus is building is a community made up of all former prodigals who are always celebrating other prodigals who come home through repentance. And the fight of our life is to neither celebrate license and the younger brother's actions, nor the older brother's and getting legalistic. The fight of our life is to stay fully in grace. Amen? 100% don't forget. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were given a robe. You were given a ring. Don't forget it because you can forget it.
And I'm just going to have to just chop it off at the end right there because I don't want to go any further. That's it. That's all I got. Amen? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, just your word. And, Lord, I just pray even in just a few minutes that, uh, that we get to sing together that, Lord, that you would move our hearts. And, Lord, that we would position ourselves right where you're leading us. Lord Jesus, you left this story just, un- just left with a minor note. You didn't ask a question. You just leave it there and you let us think about it. And, Lord, as we do, Holy Spirit, position our hearts right where you intend for them to be, all for your glory. If, if there's someone in here that has not been washed, oh, today, let them come home and be celebrated. Lord, if there's some Christian in here who, man, they have adopted the older, spirit, older brother's spirit, Lord, bring them back to the washing, bring them back to that place of grace, and, Lord, may Bannockburn always be a place of lavish grace. We give you praise for it. So take us where you want us to go and make us what you want us to be. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me all across the room? Let's sing together.